Today's New Testament reading comes from Revelation 22, verses 1 through 7 and 16 through 21. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for healing the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent the angel to show the servants what must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify about these things for the churches. I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit of and the bride will say, come. And let the one who hears come. And let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who dares to take the water of the life without price and I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book and anyone who adds to them God will add to him the plagues described in this book and if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city which described in this book. He who testifies these things, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus will be with all. Amen. The word of the Lord. If you're wondering where the offering box is, here it is. It always doubles as the um, platform as well. There's probably some sort of metaphor there or theological meaning, but um, let's focus on the text in front of us. Uh, If I haven't met you guys yet, my name is Tim Udodge, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's so good to see you guys this morning. As Joe mentioned during the confession of, of sin and assurance, we have been studying all fall through the book, the, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And, and we've acknowledged the fact over and over again that this is a book that probably for many of us has been intimidating to us. Um, it's apocalyptic literature, um, but we, we've talked about the fact that um, this word apocalyptic simply means to reveal. And so Revelation is not a book that's trying to hide something from you. It's not a book that um, you need a secret code and a secret formula and um, a lot of degrees behind your name in order to figure out. In fact, at the very beginning of this book, it says, blessed are those who hear this book read out loud. So we've tried to read as much of it, even out loud, um, to you over the course of these few months. But this morning, 
Um, we're coming to the very end. And what we've seen kind of through the book is that it's pulling back the veil on some things that are happening in our world even now, things that we can't see, things that God is doing, um, that things are not only as they seem, that there is more than meets our human eyes. So we've been looking at that, and then in these last few chapters, what we've seen is, is what is coming, what God is, is preparing, where we, we fix our hope, not so that we escape this world, all right? Not so that we just sort of hold our breath until we fly away. But what we see is that God is making all things new. And we, as citizens of his kingdom and members of the household of God, we are participating in that even now. The work that we do, the love that we show, the things that honor him are part of that place. And so before we, we dig into this, let me, let me pray and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is absolutely true, that it's given to us this morning because you love us and you want us to know you. You want us to set our hearts upon what is true and what is good and what is lovely and not on what is false. And Father, we confess that throughout this week we have listened to things that are not true. We have believed things that are not true. We've set our heart on things that are not true. And so this morning, Father, by your spirit, would you point us to what is true? Would you point us to the river of life? Would you point us to your son, Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen. As I was thinking about how to lead you into this text this morning, this is the last chapter in the Bible, so there's a little pressure here. This This is a biggie, right? And I, I kept coming back to the story that I've told you before, but I realized that it was three years ago, actually this month, when we were studying the Gospel of John and we were in chapter four. We're actually going to talk about that a little bit later. And so I realized, you know, probably only a fourth of you actually heard that. So I'm going to tell that story again. When I was in college, I had a campus minister um, who was really impactful in my life. Um, He spent a lot of time with me. We spent a lot of time together. Um, As I was kind of working out some of the questions of what I believed and questions about the Bible and theology, um, for the first time in my life, really, there was this pastor who was kind of always around who I got to spend a lot of time with. And so we talked about all sorts of things. And I remember this one season in particular where um, he was talking to me a lot about the fact that he just didn't feel good. And in fact, he was talking to everybody about the fact that he didn't feel good. Um, He felt run down, he felt lethargic, he felt tired all the time, and it was really driving him crazy. And so he was asking people around him, like, what do you think is going on with me? I mean, he was maybe 30 years old, he didn't have young children, Um, he had kind of no excuses. He should be fine, right? Um, He looked healthy, he went to the doctor, the doctor, you know, ran up all sorts of blood work, Um, you're fine. And so he started looking for things and listening to other people who would help him to feel better. And so if you do that, people are going to give you all sorts of advice, right? I mean, he ended up, somebody's like, you don't exercise? You need to exercise more, or you need to exercise in this way, and he joined a gym. Of course, a lot of people had um, a lot of, you know, advice about what he should eat, 
Uh, you need to fix your diet. You need to cut out these particular foods. You need to add these particular foods. He did, he did those things. Um, people talked to him about the fact that sleep is so important, and it is so important. And so he started to figure out, how can I sleep more? And he bought you know, a white noise machine and a body pillow that we made fun of and an eye mask and earplugs. Got the sleep covered. And I remember one day I was meeting with him, and I was drinking coffee, and I realized he was not a coffee drinker. And I said, well, that's your problem. Like, it is the solution. Like, you feel tired and lethargic, uh, you need the, the drug caffeine. And so he tried it that day, and I remember he spent the rest of our meeting in the bathroom because he's allergic to it. And so that was, that was how I helped him. Um, no help at all. And then finally, somebody gave him a little book. And the book was called, You're Not Sick, You're Thirsty. And you didn't really have to read the book because the title sort of gives away what the book's about. It basically is saying you need to drink more water. And so he begins to drink more water. And what he realizes is that, yes, he's been really dehydrated. He starts to feel better. He starts to go around and tell everyone. I mean, he's like preaching the gospel of hydration everywhere he goes because what he realizes is that I listened to all these people. I spent all this money. I bought all these things. I tried all these methods. And the thing that made me better was like something that is absolutely free. I mean, I can, I can in this very building, you can push a button and it will come out. And he was, he was just amazed by this and, and told everyone about it. And I start with that story because it's a really, it's a biblical story, right? I mean, there, there is a sense in which we could say that is the story of the Bible, because what the Bible tells us is that everybody is thirsty. Everybody is hungry. That, that there are thirsty people here this morning. That there are thirsty people that you work with. That there are thirsty people that you live with. That we can feel that there's something that, that it's just, I don't feel quite right. Something, something seems a little off, and, and we look, and we listen, and we think, somebody will help give me the answer to this. Somebody will help quench this thirst. And it's strange because we live in a time when there are endless possibilities of things that will promise to make you better, to make you feel better, not just physically, but to make you feel better deep down inside. We have more opportunities at our disposal than maybe the world has ever known. We have more education at our disposal. I mean, if you think even 100 years ago, if people would dream about the fact that you can travel and go to universities like all over the world, or you can get online and listen to, to let you want an education, you could pretty much listen to in lectures from a lot of major universities online. That you, we have stores for everything. Like the niche market for stores, there is a store like for, for every aspect of your life. And if you don't want to go anywhere, then you can stay on your couch and you have Amazon Prime and it can be there in two days. You can order whatever you want. And despite all that, the rate of depression, the rate of anxiety the rate of what I would just call a general restlessness in our culture is through the roof. 
Why is it that the things that everyone tells us are going to make us happy almost never do? Or if they do, why is, it, why is it not lasting? Why is it only temporary? Why is it that the things that we sometimes convince ourselves we need in order to feel full actually end up making us feel more empty? There's this famous quote by C.S. Lewis you probably heard by, before when he said, if I find in myself desires that this world cannot satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And this is, this is throughout, this is why throughout Scripture, this metaphor of thirst and hunger is used to describe what? It's used to describe our longing for, for the presence of God, to be with God. It, it described, because ever since uh, man and woman were, ever since they left the garden, ever since they left that place where they were in God's presence, where they walked with him in the cool of the day, where there, if we can't fathom this, where there was no guilt and there was no shame. You know what that would feel like? Because you were in his presence and there was nothing to be afraid of and there was nothing to be ashamed of. And ever since man and woman had to leave that garden, they were filled with this ache and this longing and this thirst. The world is not right. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right to any of us because it shouldn't be this way. And so we were born thirsty. We were born wanting living water. We were born wanting lasting water. We were born wanting to be forgiven and washed clean and to stand in the presence of God without shame or guilt. That's what we long for. That's what we're thirsty for. And what you know who've been coming here that this is exactly what Jesus has come to to give us. It's exactly what you who believe in him right now have already tasted of to some degree, right? That that you've already tasted of his forgiveness, that you've already tasted of his love. But what we've also been looking at in the book of Revelation, and I think that the reason, one of the reasons this book is written, is that even for those of us who believe and who have tasted of this water, that we're making this pilgrimage through the wilderness, that we're making this pilgrimage through Babylon, that we live in Babylon, And Babylon has many, many, many different solutions to our thirst. And the book of Revelation has made that really clear. That even if you've tasted of this living water, that there are other streams of water that are really powerful. And every day you're going to be tempted to to want to drink from one of them. And Revelation keeps bringing us back to look at Jesus, to look at Jesus again and again and again. There was a, um, a little piece written by the New York Times columnist David Brooks that came out, I think it was back in April. This talks about five lies that we believe. And he, he says this, he says that um, our whole country, he said, is going through some sort of spiritual and emotional crisis. I mean, I think it's fair to say that mankind from the fall has been going through a spiritual and emotional crisis. Sometimes it looks worse than other times. But he says this, at the root of it all is the following problem. We've created a culture that's based on lies. 
And then he goes through kind of these five lies that he says are most prevalent in our culture right now. I'm not going to go through all of them, but just listen to the first one. He says this, career success is fulfilling. That that's a lie that our culture tends to believe, that that career success is fulfilling. This is what he says about it. This is the lie we foist upon the young. In their tender years, we put the most privilege of them inside a college admissions process that puts achievement and status anxiety at the center of their lives. That begins advertising's lifelong mantra. If you make it, life will be good. He goes on to say, everybody who has actually tasted success can tell you that that is not true. If you make it, life will be good. Maybe, maybe these lies that, we're, that, we, that we swim in every day, that we breathe in every day, that we, that we listen to every day, maybe they're the reason that so many of us feel this incessant just kind of urge that says, I have to be better than I am. Why am I not good enough? Why can't I perform well enough? Why can't I be a good enough mom? Why can't I be, a good, be good enough at school? Why are the people around me not struggling the way that I am? Why can't I be better? Maybe the lies that are around us are the reason that so many of us struggle with imposter syndrome, right? That we just kind of, we kind of think, well, I'm going to fake it till I make it. And I really hope, I have no idea how I got here. I hope nobody finds out what a big idiot I actually am. Right? You ever feel that way? Every day, right? Maybe it's the reason for, for those of us who have kids that there's this obsession. This obsession that says, like, if I can, if I can like, just guard their life. And I can make their life in the years that they're in my home, if I can educate them the right way and tell them the right things and teach them the right way, then maybe they won't suffer and maybe they won't hurt in this life. And a lot of times what we want for our kids, we want so badly for this life that we kind of forget that there is an eternal life. Maybe it's why, maybe these lies are the reason that we incessantly distract ourselves. That we distract ourselves and we numb ourselves because there is, this, there is this feeling that if I really sit and I think about the thirst, if I really sit and I think about the hunger, it gets really uncomfortable. And I've got this little device in my pocket that I can pull out. And I don't have to think about things. I can just read an article I can shop for something. I can do some email. And then we realize, I can't stop doing that any longer. I want to stop, but I can't. You're looking at me like you don't experience this. I know you do, right? I can't stop. Or we numb, the, we numb it, right? We, we numb it with food. We numb it maybe even with exercise. Maybe even things that are healthy. We numb it with alcohol. C.S. Lewis, when he, when he said that quote, if I find that there's these desires in here that, that nothing in this earth can actually satisfy, it's telling me 
logically that I was made for another world, C.S. Lewis was just riffing off of, of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 14, where he just says, we have no lasting city here. We don't have a city that lasts. That's the way that you feel the way that you feel. But we are seeking a city that is to come. And that's what we started looking at last week when John finally gets this, this vision and this new heavens and this new earth is shown to him. And the lamb who, who is in the midst of it is seated on a throne and he's saying, behold, I'm making all of these things new. This new Jerusalem, it starts as a garden, but it ends as a city. And in the midst of this city, if we followed the storyline of Scripture at all, we should have been able to maybe guess what was in this. At the very end of the Bible, of course, there is a river. A river of life. And that river of life feeds these trees that grow on its banks. And these trees, even their leaves, bring healing to the nations. It's a thread that runs through the whole Bible. I want to talk about that um, just for a minute. Some of us are maybe more familiar um, with that than others. But just go back with me. If you know anything about the Bible, go back to the very beginning. And we see creation and we see God creating this, this perfect place. This place of harmony. This place of goodness. This place of beauty. And what's in the middle of it? There's a river. A river that flows through it, that, that waters and brings life to all the, the plants and the trees that are in this garden. And the source of that river, where, where does it come from? It comes from God himself. But what we know in the story is that, that man and woman decide that there might be something better for them. They rebel against God. They want to be their own God. They're banished from that garden. And what happens? What's the, it's the story of humanity. It's the story that I just talked about. It's this ache and this longing and this, this thirst that develops because they've been banished from his presence. And they may not even know, they may not even know why they feel the way they feel. Why, why is nothing satisfying me? Why is it that I just buy more stuff and, and all I want at the end of that is more stuff? the Bible tells us is that what we're longing for is his presence. And so we follow this thread and what we find is that, that God's people, they're, they're rescued by God from bondage and from slavery in Egypt. And where does he take them? He takes them into the wilderness. They're there for quite a while. And in the wilderness, what happens in the wilderness? They can feel their hunger, Right? They can feel their thirst. And in the wilderness, it's interesting because, you know, maybe even in Egypt, when they were in slavery, they could reach over and grab something to eat themselves. But in the wilderness, they can't. Maybe there was plenty of water, and they even bring this up to Moses. Why don't we go back to slavery? Because there was plenty of things that I could do for myself. I could, I could produce some of my own food. I could produce some of my own water. God takes them instead, where? Into the wilderness where they have no food and water. Why? So that he can feed them. And what does he do? He sends bread out of heaven. It literally falls from the sky and they say, what is it? And that's what they name it, manna, which means what is it? 
It's bread from heaven, and God tells them, you can only collect enough to eat for this day. Give me this day my daily bread. Tomorrow it will spoil. What does that mean? That means that tomorrow I've got to depend, I've got to trust that tomorrow, what is the source of life? It's God. Who is going to feed me? God. There's this one scene in Exodus 17 where they get, (laughs) the people of God get so thirsty that Moses is sure, he says to God, they're going to kill me. They're so thirsty and they're so angry that I have brought them, that you have brought them out into this wilderness where it looks so bleak and it looks so awful and it looks like nothing good can happen. Why? They're asking, why did you bring us out here to die? And what does God tell Moses? He says, go to this rock that's called Horeb, and he said, my presence is going to pass before it, and I want you to take the staff in your hand, the same staff that you struck the Nile with, and I want you to strike the rock. And when you strike the rock, he strikes the rock, and what happens? That water gushes out of a rock, and the people lap it up like dogs. I mean, they just go to town. This water is coming out of a rock. Paul in 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about this, he he talks about the people of God, that they all ate the same spiritual food, which came directly from God, and they all drank the same spiritual drink that came from the rock. And he has this little tagline on there. He says, and the rock was Christ. The passage that Bob read to us earlier, one of the prophets, Ezekiel, he gets shown this vision. I've told you in Revelation, there's, if, you've read the, if you read the Old Testament, there's really nothing new in Revelation that we've seen it all before. And here is this vision that have, Ezekiel has shown the temple and there's a trickle of water that's coming out from the midst of the temple. What was the temple? We talked about this last week. It's where God's presence was, was with man. And out of God's presence here on the earth flowed this, this little trickle and they measure it and they cross over it, and it's ankle deep, and then it's knee deep, and then it's waist deep, and then it's a raging river that you can't get across. And what's on the banks of the river that this, that this river is, is feeding? There's trees with fruit and leaves for healing. How do we drink from this water and eat from this tree? How do we get what our, what our souls most deeply long for? How is our thirst quenched and our hungers satisfied? And, and what's clear over and over again is that it's not something that you can do and that it's not something that you can produce and it's not something that you can pay for. It's not something that you can buy because even though our sin is the cause of our hunger and thirst, God continues to hunt his people down and feed them and he continues to give them something to drink. And so that when Jesus shows up, When Jesus takes on flesh and comes down and dwells among his people, what he makes abundantly clear is that this is what you're thirsty for. You're thirsty for me. Where do we see it? You see it in in John chapter 4, right? I mean, he says it explicitly as he goes to this well in the middle of the day where this Samaritan woman has gone to draw water, and she is a true sinner, She is an outcast in her town. She is an outcast from from the Jews. 
She's been divorced five times. There's five men who didn't want her. And the, and the man that she's with right now is not her husband. And she's there to what? She's there to draw water. And Jesus says, give me some of this water. And she said, do you want me to give you some water? And Jesus uses it as this segue to say, I have water for you. That if you drink it, you will never thirst again. She doesn't quite understand it, but the thing is, Jesus gives her that water. Because she gets so frustrated that she kind of says, there's a, there's a Messiah coming, and when he comes, he'll, he'll explain all of this to us because I'm confused by our conversation. And Jesus says, I'm here right now. I'm standing before you. I'm offering you full forgiveness. I see you. I know you. I know everything about you. And I offer you forgiveness. That's the living water. She leaves, and she is never the same again after that encounter. A couple chapters later, what does Jesus do? He feeds 5,000 people. He takes a few loaves of bread, and he keeps multiplying it, multiplying it, multiplying it, until everyone eats their fill. And then afterwards, there's, there's some religious leaders who come after him. And they're, they're, they're curious, like, who is this guy that he can do this? And they might still be a little hungry. They might want hung more food the next day. He can produce bread out of thin air. And they said, you know who else could do that? Moses could do that. And Jesus says this to them. He says, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us this bread always. And what does Jesus say? He declares to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The very next chapter, Jesus, in John chapter 7, Jesus stands up. He goes to this festival of booths. And he stands up on the last day, the great day of that festival, when there would have been a water offering that was poured out that symbolized how God gave them water in the desert, gave their forefathers water in the desert. Jesus stands up on that last day and he declares to everyone, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. On the night in which he was betrayed... He sits down with his disciples. It's the time of Passover. It's the time they celebrate God's delivering them out of slavery and out of bondage. And Jesus sits down with his disciples and he takes bread and he says, this is my body. And he takes a cup of wine and he says, this is my blood. And I think maybe at that moment for them, it starts coming together all of these threads of scripture and, and listening to Jesus teaching and him saying back in John chapter six, my, my body is true food and my blood is true drink. And a lot of people left that day because they didn't understand. How do we get it? How do we get this? We can't earn it. We can't pay for it. We can't buy it. Instead, Jesus shows up and access to the tree of life and the living water, access to the tree only comes by Jesus ascending and hanging upon a tree. Why? Because the Bible tells us it's cursed 
is anyone who hangs upon a tree. God's people drink water that flowed from a rock. What, when? After the rock was struck. And Paul tells us that rock was Christ, that Christ had to be struck down so that you might drink the water. That Jesus bore our curse. How? By becoming a curse. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is why Jesus on the cross cries out, what? I thirst. I thirst. You thirst? Yes, because Jesus at that moment as he bears the weight of the curse and he bears the weight of our sin that his father turns his back on him. His father turns his presence away from him. And so Jesus thirsts. He thirsts for us so that you will never have to be thirsty again, that he is forsaken so that you will not be forsaken, so that you can come and drink. I love that this is the last thing in the Bible, right? Because it's an invitation to us. Let everyone who is thirsty, let anyone who is thirsty, anyone who is thirsty come. Come and drink the water of life without price. Who is it for? It's for those who have come this morning with their garments bloodied by the tribulation and trial of this life. And they're thirsty. It's for those who have bloodied their garments with depression and with grief and with tragedy and they're thirsty. It's those who have bloodied their garments with addiction and with shame and with trying the next thing, and they're thirsty. It's with those who bloodied their garments with sin that they want to get rid of, but it just seems like they can't, and they're thirsty. It's for those who simply believe. What is it, they asked Jesus in John chapter 6, must we do in order to be doing the works of God? Jesus said, believe in him who he has sent. Believe in me. Come to me and drink. Those who are thirsty. I was thinking about this scene um, earlier this week, and I kept thinking of this quote by by the author, um, Brennan Manning. So I went back and found it. And I'll end with this. He says, because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the the throne and in front of the lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, I shall see the prostitute who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment for her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse. The businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman addicted to being liked, who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. But how, we ask, And the voice says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There they are. There we are. The multitude who so wanted to be faithful. Who at times got defeated. Soiled by life. Bested by trials. Wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations. But through it all, clung to faith. My friends, if this is not good news to you, you have never understood the gospel of grace.
1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. The living water is available to you right now. It is Jesus. He is here at this table with us this morning. And I think the purpose of this book is to keep pointing us back to the stream of living water, to point us to the Lamb and to call us away from the polluted streams and the wells of this world, to call us to endure. It's a call to remain faithful. It's, the, it's, it's a reminder that you right now are citizens of the New Jerusalem already. But for a moment, together, we're, we're, we're on a pilgrimage. We're journeying through the wilderness. We live in Babylon, and while we do, we cry out these words, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let me pray. Father, we, we, we don't cry those words out enough. Come, Lord Jesus. But when we taste of the hurt and the pain of this world, when we taste of the, the result of our own brokenness and our own sin, Father, I pray that it would cause us, first and foremost, to cry out, come, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for him. We thank you for his love. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for this table right now and for what it tells us about who we are and who we belong to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.